This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your smartphone, tablet, or desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hi, I'm Anthony Montgomery, Ensign Travis Mayweather on Star Trek Enterprise, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Warp 5, our dedicated Enterprise show. I'm your host, Norman Lau, and thank you for joining us for part two of our spotlight on Jonathan Archer. Now, I'd like to begin the show by sharing with you something that I feel strongly about, about Archer, and that is the quality of his character and what he represents to me and to the overall canon of Star Trek. So if I were an admiral, consider this a letter of commendation. I believe that the one sheer and undeniable fact fans tend to forget when they criticize Archer for not meeting or even exceeding the quality of a Starfleet captain like Kirk or Picard is this. He was a Starfleet captain, namely in rank, but not a Starfleet captain of any measurable experience. I agree that it is fair to say that he was unprepared for deep space, but that's a valid criticism. Or in fact, a sheer truism? Think about the validity of that specific critique and ask yourself, how does one truly prepare for the unknown vastness of uncharted space? How can one prepare for the unimaginable, as experienced by the Zindi attack on Earth? That is simply and logically a true and undeniable impossibility. To discredit or criticize Archer for being unprepared for the first deep space mission that has never been attempted in the history of man, let alone Starfleet, is an illogical proposition at best. Archer was, by and large, destined to fail. It was inevitable. He was an exemplary in the quality of his duty, yet ill-equipped to handle the sheer and vast unknown that was ahead of him. His morality was tested at every decision, and his humanity was tested at every turn. More often than not, he had no right answers, only more questions. It was these very experiences that became the essential bedrock of all captain's log entries, and in turn, the foundation for the legendary captains of Starfleet as we know them today. Unfortunately, Archer never had the comfort of this precious resource to guide him. Every starship captain that succeeded Archer, as immediate as Erica Hernandez, or later with Kelvar Garth, Robert April, Christopher Pike, James T. Kirk, Ron Tracy, Commodore Matt Decker, or even far into his future like Rachel Garrett, Jean-Luc Picard, Ron Jellico. Benjamin Sisko, Catherine Janeway, they all owe something, even in the smallest of ways, to the flawed and at times tragically tarnished career that Archer had to endure in order for humanity to survive, specifically against the Zindi, 
and the mission that changed him forever. So I think in the final analysis, Archer's vision of an even greater future for not only humanity, but for all sentient beings was built upon a great deal of blood, sweat, and tears and regret. And through all this pain, self-doubt, sacrifice, and loss, something legendary was born. And that was the United Federation of Planets. Thanks, everyone, for indulging me on that. I hope that that was something that can just bring a little bit of insight and food for thought for your discussions of Archer in the future. So to help me even delve even deeper into the character of Jonathan Archer and to shed more insight into what makes him tick are my very special guests from part one, Trek FM's very own content coordinator, Will Nguyen. Will, how are you? I'm good. Uh, it feels like I've been in the decon chamber forever. It's like we never leave here. I wonder if uh, Captain Archer actually gets mad that we're just in here all the time. I can't remember how long like a single crewman had to endure the decon chamber. I think it was Hoshi. She was sick for a long time, and uh, I think she started hallucinating even in, in, in one session in the decon chamber. Porthos had to stay for quite a while, too. He did, didn't he? Yep. Yeah. So We do have a lot of cheese in leave here. Leave it up to so the beagle to, good. you know. Yeah. We do yeah. have a lot of cheese in here. And welcome back, Star Trek Horizons intrepid visionary, Tommy Craft. Tommy, how you doing? I'm lovely. Thank you for having me back in the decon chamber. Absolutely. So there's a lot to get to uh, today, guys. So let's get to the business at hand and let's start looking at four specific episodes, primarily in season three, because the Zindi arc is probably the darkest journey that Archer had to go through. And one episode from season four where we start seeing how he reconciles with the choices that he had to put himself through in season three. And the very first episode I'd like to talk about is episode two from season three, Anomaly. Now, just to briefly state that Anomaly is when the Enterprise is damaged by spatial anomalies and it is boarded by pirates. And there are very specific scenes in this episode where we start seeing Archer make choices because he felt that he had no other outlet or recourse except for always putting humanity's best interests first, even over the primary mission of the Enterprise. How did you guys feel about these specific instances when you saw them in this episode? I think uh, the this episode's a really great start just in terms of not only setting the stage for Archer, but also setting the tone of what season three is going to be. I mean, visually, when you first start this episode you know something's amiss, right? So clearly something's happening with the spatial anomalies. The physical environment itself is out of whack. It's out of tune. And for me, that's a touchstone um, narratively that this is also going to be an episode where Archer as a character will be begin to be out of sorts. He's going to have to be a different type of captain and he has to adapt to a very fluid environment, both physically, but also emotionally and um on a personal level. So I think it's definitely trending towards a, a grittier uh, captain than we've seen before. You know, just to point out, when I first saw this episode, the major difference that I saw between the Archer at the end of season two and the Archer at the beginning of season three was purely physical. I mean, his hair, which was so perfect, and his uniform, which was so buttoned up they started to show signs of wear they they started to to be less important to him and 
in a way, it started to color how you felt about how he held himself in regards to his captaincy. Did you guys feel that way, or is it just me? I absolutely felt that way, and that was going to be one of the first things I mentioned. And you see this especially once we get to similitude, how out of place uh, he, you know, he be, he looks very disheveled, and you can tell too just from his demeanor, the way he carries himself, and even in this episode, anomaly, he uh, he just generally looks more pissed off all the time. To to put it in a nutshell, um, kind of the. Uh, the I guess the more happy-go-lucky Archer from previous seasons isn't really here, and you can tell that he's very frustrated. And uh, you can see it on his face when the coffee cup goes flying from the anomaly. And uh, it isn't a look of shock from from what's happening with, uh, with the anomaly, just a look of, I can't believe we have to keep dealing with this and why we're here. So I think that's a very good difference in style for Scott Bakula. You know, I also saw that he was carrying a sidearm, and that was I actually didn't notice that. Yeah, he. Um, it's. I'm not sure if it was standard because they brought the Makos in, and because of just the general tenor of season three. But he did walk around the majority of the episode, if not the entire episode, with a sidearm strapped to his uniform, and maybe it's because he's starting to inform the audience that this is a darker Archer or this is a darker turn for the crew. I mean, the only time I actually really saw that at the in any episode of Star Trek that I can remember was in Yesterday's Enterprise, but that was an alternate universe, you know, where everything was dark and every every you know every turn was danger. But I I really do think that just the overall appearance, especially for him, was hugely informative when it came to the mindset of where he is now. Even the rest of the crew weren't they weren't really all that changed. I mean they they were still who they were by and large, but it was really Archer who started to to show it outwardly as opposed to anyone else. Now, I mentioned earlier that there was a few specific scenes in this episode that started to give us a lot more information on how to uh how Archer was starting to turn and the word interrogation can't be lightly disputed here. I mean, he really took a very cold and calculating approach to the prisoner that they caught after they these raiders boarded their ship. How did you guys feel about the approach that the writers took towards this inter- interrogation scene? how they baited Archer in one way and then actually paying off the resolve towards the end of the episode where you saw him push you know, into the, the chamber and watch him suffer. Did that shock you? I think the first time it did. Um, and I think it's interesting to note, too, that it wasn't the risk to his own crew that finally pushed him into doing that. It was when he had the conversation with the guy about the Zindi. And I think this is a a theme we will see throughout the season with Archer, especially when we get to damage, is that you might call it a rationalization, but it's only when the larger picture of humanity being at stake is when he takes these these more severe actions. And uh, I think it was a very good place to build to for him because we've it goes so counter to everything that he's believed in up until this point. Yeah, I think 
this episode really you really have to look at this episode through the perspective of where the rest of society was at the time this episode was made. This was made obviously post 9-11, probably during the Iraq war, the lead up to the sustained conflicts that we see now overseas. And Star Trek is oftentimes that mirror or it's often a type of reflection on what society is or reflection on what current events are. And I think, uh, this episode is very much in the milieu of what the pop cultural uh, mentality is or the the atmosphere in which it existed. You had shows like 24. You had shows uh, of that nature around at the same time. You know, this threat, this ticking time bomb, uh, a type of existential threat that wages asymmetrical warfare or wages warfare in a way that, you know, isn't governed by the traditional rules of war. So you have, in a lot of ways, a very clear setup towards uh, a, a, a divergence point, a point in which you're going to have to make that decision of where your morality or when your morality is going to bend and under what circumstance it's going to bend. And obviously it's, it's important because everything we've seen before this has led us to believe that Archer is not only not a military officer he he is part of an exploratory service but at the same time he's now thrust into this very complicated mission where he has military officers on board he has a mission that is very definitely not one based off of peace and exploration and it's a role that you could see he takes on by circumstance but that he will have no reservations or hesitance if he needs to undertake uh, what he needs to do to ensure you know the mission goes through so for me it's very much a very strong statement that this entire arc that's coming is one that is definitely going to be an archer that we haven't seen before whether or not that's morally justifiable I think we'll get uh, we'll discuss that more uh, as the episode goes on well, that's interesting that you say that because I actually wrote down in one of my notes one of Archer's quotes, that one that stuck with me really deeply because this was the quote I thought colored the uh, the whole tenor of the episode. There's too much at stake to let my morality get in the way. I think this was the first time that I actually heard Archer admit that he has to go down a certain course. He's starting to believe that in order to win this war against the Zindi, he first has to admit that it is a war. And secondly, he has to admit to himself that he has to do what it takes in order for humanity to survive. He has to put a lot of his own personal and moral compass to the side and execute the mission at hand. It's something that he's not comfortable with, and it, and it shows. And, and that's why I like tying together uh, the, the outwardly effect that it's having on him as his the way he speaks to his crew, the sharpness that he's uh, evolving into as the kind of like the inward struggle that's eating away at him. But there's still a little bit of this humanity that's still left behind because he didn't execute the prisoner. He let him go. He brought him to the brink of torture, but he let him go. So there's still a little hope for Archer. The next episode that I wanted to talk about is something that I'd like to call the God Complex as it, as it pertains to Archer and his evolution through the Zindi arc. And no episode in this 
particular part of the series is more exemplary of that than episode 10, Similitude. And I know Tommy has been chomping at the bit to discuss this particular episode because I think it's something that you really have uh, a lot to say about. So just to just to inform the listeners that this is the episode where Trip is injured and they needed him to fix the warp engines. They had to clone him using Dr. Phlox's help. And what happens when this clone becomes a life that you have to deal with in terms of what this life means, how long this life is going to be with us, and how we're going to use it eventually in the end to save another life. Tommy, how did you feel about that? Well, I think this is a fantastic episode for the show in general, but also for Archer and for T'Pol as well, if you want to be honest. She has some great moments in here, and for Dr. Flox. But um, especially... This is what I talked about earlier. You can see how disheveled Archer is at this point, and especially through the course of this episode, I noticed on rewatch that uh, he grows quite a bit of five o'clock shadow by the end of the episode. As you know, he hasn't been shaving, he hasn't been keeping himself up well because the situations have been weighing on him so heavily. And just the demeanor that he approaches Sim with in the episode is often quite harsh because I think he doesn't really want to. Uh, he doesn't want to deal with the moral complexities of this, and so he wants to keep it very cut and dry and very simple until it isn't. And um, there's the one monologue, well, it's not really a monologue, but this confrontation between him and Sim later in the episode when, uh, when he says that he needs Trip to complete the mission. And Sim asks, even if that means letting me die, and Archer says, even if that means letting you die. I think, honestly, that it's about more than saving Earth at this point. I think there's quite a bit of hint there, too, that uh, Trip is Archer's friend. And he doesn't want to let Trip die. And I think even though Archer would never admit that, that's a big part of of his decision-making in this episode. Um, and I don't know really what his ultimate decision would have been if Sim had not uh, decided to comply and help them. And I think that's a testament to how well Scott Bakula played that and how different it is from what we normally see from Archer, a guy who's so tied to his principles and now we're just, we have no clue what he's going to do. Would he really have uh, killed Sim to save Archer? I don't know. And it's it's a morally gray episode, too. None of us really, I don't think, knows what we would do in that situation. And there's really no better way, I think, that Archer could have handled it. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think this episode is strong, I think, in a lot of ways. It represents, it's that classic episode of using science fiction tropes and technology to really illustrate the point of how far you're willing to go. And this in this episode, you know, Trip and, and Sim, they're literally mirror images, uh, mirror images of each other. They're literally clones. So, I mean, Sim is a clone of of Trip, and you have a walking, breathing, thinking embodiment of of your conscience, right? So when Sim says, you know, I am my own person, like why should I sacrifice myself? You know, this is someone that looks just like his best friend. He has the memories of his best friend. 
And when Archer is confronted with this, it's not just him confronting his own doubts or reservations based off of, I would say, more abstract notions of his morality or his conscience. He's having literally his friends saying, why are you killing me? Or why do you, why do you have to choose? Why do I have to sacrifice myself? And at this point, I think what I took away from the episode is it's not a given, although Phlox gave the impression that the, the, the transplant or the procedure would be able to revive Trip. It's not a given necessarily that by Sim sacrificing himself, Trip will be restored. Just imagine how much darker of an episode it would have been if, you know, Sim had resisted, Archer had ordered him to to be restrained, order the procedure to be done on him. They do it on Trip, and it doesn't work, or it doesn't work as well as they thought. And either Trip doesn't make it, or Trip is a is a shell of his former self. And you know, for me, I think that's probably not you know the episode the the writers or the producers wanted to go with they wanted to obviously keep the narrative the narrative tension the narrative story being propelled forward but can you imagine how dark and how agonizing of, a, of an ending the episode would have been if you know he had made that choice for the greater good and yet he still you know the the greater objective still couldn't be met because there were circumstances outside of his control and i think it speaks volumes that you know this episode was the first that many Cotto. Uh, had full credits on as I think the co-executive producer. Uh, for me, it's a great episode for newcomers. They can really understand right off the bat that there's a there's a clone of a person. You know, does one life mean the same as another life? Um, I think it's a great introduction to kind of the moral pl- uh, morality plays that Star Trek does often. So uh, there's a lot to chew on there. Ultimately, the, the it's an ending that worked well for the story of the Zindi arc, but in terms of really presenting the tough moral dilemmas, it could have gone into a far darker place. But you know, Will, um, bringing that up, one of the, I think one of the seminal episodes of Star Trek in the entirety of Star Trek, uh, as it applies to this particular episode, is the Next Generation's Measure of a Man, because by and large, Sim was a product of a creature that was technically Starfleet property. Technically. It was one of Phlox's creatures. It, it was part of the sick bay. It was part of the inventory. It was something that, obviously, a last-ditch effort in terms of trying to do something to revive and save Trip. But it was, for all intents and purposes, inventory. Property. And going back to Measure of a Man, Data was property. Or was he? That was the point. And Sim... He was sentient, he was aware, and he was able to make his own decisions. Those were the criteria, I believe, for the definition of sentient life versus being property. So it was a darker angle of measure of a man, but in the end, the undeniable fact is this, is that Sim had to have the opportunity to make that decision for himself. Even if Archer ordered him to, the morality that weighed in on Archer would have been this. I have to do this or humanity will die. That's a fact. I have to order you to do this, Sim. And if you refuse, I will have to take another drastic measure which pushes me further down this 
pathway to darkness that I have no idea if I'm going to be able to climb out of. And this is just another rung in that ladder. So either way, Archer is still moving forward into an unknown, both in the Zindi, in the expanse, but also an unknown to his own center and moral belief. And this is, it's, it's a really impactful and powerful episode. But for me, in this season, I think there's only one other episode that would trump this in terms of where Archer really turns, and that is Damage. I'm not sure, for the listeners out there, if you have caught up to this point in your watching. And if you haven't, I would spoiler alert this, because this episode, for me, I think is the best episode in Enterprise. That's just my personal opinion. Because, and I'm going to start off with a quote. And this quote is so powerful, because it is admission of conscience that something is going to turn for Archer. There's a confession scene between Archer and Phlox, and Archer turns to him and says, how long have you been a doctor? Nearly 40 years. And in all that time, did you ever do anything you thought was unethical? Twice. Why? I'm about to step over a line, a line I thought I would never cross. And given the nature of our mission, it probably won't be the last. He already accepts the fact that these are going to continue. These decisions are going to continue because he has to do the right thing to save humanity. I was blown away when I saw that because as a captain, as the pinnacle and the paragon of the Starfleet ideal, this flies in the face of everything that I knew about a captain. And I think this is probably the one scene that turns a lot of fans away from Archer because this isn't what a captain is supposed to be. A captain's supposed to have every option, every answer, every way out, every possible opportunity to, to preserve what Starfleet is. But this isn't Starfleet yet. Not the Starfleet that we know, not the captains that we know. This is a man faced with a moral decision to do the right thing against all odds or he will lose and in turn, humanity will lose. How did you guys feel when you watched this episode? Well, I think much like similitude, it's not cut and dry. Um, the idea that Archer with Sim only had two options, uh, kill him and save Earth, or don't kill him and don't save Earth, it wasn't that, that clear that if, he, if Sim did give up his life, that their mission would succeed. Because they, they could have... Um, they could have done the procedure on Sim and might have saved his life and for all intents and purposes it would have been Trip and everything would have been hunky-dory. But in the same case here, they didn't necessarily have to go meet Degra and um, there's nothing saying, given what they knew at the time, that meeting Degra would have been the answer to their problems with the Zindi weapon. And so Archer, once again, is taking a huge gamble here, and it's really the way it would be in real life, I think, if somebody was in this situation. You very rarely have the best options and the best choices available to you. And it it's a question I don't know how to answer. As somebody who likes to identify with Captain Archer a lot, 
the the humanitarian side of him, I don't know how I would deal with this situation. I I'm very adamant, for instance, that the, that the idea of torture is wrong. But and and the problem you have is that in real life there are no ticking bomb scenarios where torturing somebody you know is going to save lives, and so in this case. I don't know. I don't know how you make that decision. I, I don't think he could have done it any other way, but I don't know if that's the best decision either, and it's, it's a very powerful moment. The decision that. also, for the listeners, in particular to the plotline of this episode, the Enterprise, the warp core is damaged. This happened after Azadi Prime, where the Enterprise is basically left adrift. Everything in this episode is damaged. The ship is damaged. Morale is damaged. Spirit is damaged. T'Pol is mentally and physically damaged. Archer is mentally and physically damaged. Everything in the ship is broken. The spirits are broken. The morality is broken. And there's a beacon of hope. A ship. An innocent group of travelers in the expanse are looking for a possible trade. And Archer needs their warp coil. And he takes it because he has to and leaves them stranded away from their home because the choice that he had to make, again, was the only choice in front of him that he thought he could make. And that was the choice of the confession that I read earlier. It is an impossible scenario. And in my opinion, this was his Kobayashi Maru. Did he pass it or did he fail it? What do you guys think? I think... First off, I think I want to mention that Casey Biggs is the captain of the alien ship who plays Damar in Deep Space Nine, one of my all-time favorite characters. So I just love the fact that you saw I saw Casey Biggs again, and he's playing a different character, but he still has that gravitas that he brought into the other role. So that's my first point. Um, I think my second point is I just love how this episode is an exact mirror but opposite of Anomaly, right? They become the pirates, Right, they become the exact opposite. Right, so the Osarians in Anomaly were were pushed to the brink because they couldn't get out of the thermobaric barriers, and they had to they had to be forced to scrounge and scavenge and and resort to piracy. And who'd have thought that near the end of this season, Archer would be put in a very similar situation? And you know that there is a very clear through line. There is a very clear connection in that, and. You know, I, I, I would echo Tommy's sentiments here because, you know, I feel the same way. For me, I, I believe torture is, is wrong because I feel like the ticking time bomb scenario is often not presented in that fashion. It's not presented in real life as as a binary. But so often in Star Trek, in Enterprise and other TV shows or movies, you're presented with this 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 issue where it's, you need to act, and by acting, you're automatically going to to save humanity or the world or whatever high stakes has been presented. And if you don't do this exact thing, meaning torturing someone, then you're going to automatically fail. And I think, I think that's a common trope in a lot of these things, and I think there's a reason why it's a common trope. It's a well-worn uh, mechanism to kind of uh, really crystallize moral dilemma. And I think in this, in this case, it works for what the Zindi arc was attempting to do. I just think, you know, I think if, if I was going to have a, a criticism of this episode, I like what it does. And a lot of, there's a lot of good character growth too with this episode. I think I wish that 
in season four or even if it enterprise had survived that archer would have faced the repercussions of what he did here because is that how we judge whether we should do something as if something uh if we actually accomplish our mission would it would he have been persecuted would he have been critiqued if the mission hadn't worked or if he had or if he wasn't able to save humanity and he still did this or is it because he's able to save humanity that he's absolved of this is there is there that fine line obviously that's the evolution to the starfleet ethos the starfleet principle and enterprise only had four seasons so i understand that but i i think for me i would have loved to have seen down the road are there repercussions in the same way that Kirk in Wrath of Khan faced repercussions of abandoning Khan on, uh, you know, SETI Alpha. Is it five or six? I always get mixed up. SETI Alpha Alpha five, right? You know, that decision comes back to haunt him, right? In the same way, how great would it have been if down the road that captain, you know, he, Archer assured him, we're going to give you enough supplies. You're going to make it out in three months. You know, you know, we're not completely abandoning you. What if down the road, that actually didn't happen. What if they, you know, the crew died, or um, the ship didn't make it back? But that captain remembered what Archer did, and he has this huge grudge, right? And I think, I think that's one of the things that Star Trek, and, and in addition to a lot of other, um, you know, pop culture works out there, sometimes, you know, it doesn't necessarily delve into the the repercussions or the unintended consequences of what we do in the name of a of a greater good. So. You know, I would have loved to have seen down the road, like maybe there, you know, he saved humanity, but there's still a consequence for him doing this, that he can't completely walk away unscathed um, in the same way that, you know, we never saw it in Deep Space Nine. But, you know, Cisco says, I can live with, you know, lying about the Romulans and murder and being an, and you're referencing right, exactly, in the pale moonlight, uh, being an accessory to murder in the pale moonlight. You know, can Cisco just walk away with uh a bruised conscience or are there other consequences? Well, we don't know in canon, but it's one of those things where I think Star Trek, if if it was given the opportunity and it was ambitious enough to really embrace it, you're going to see that there are consequences regardless of whether you achieve your main objective and sometimes unintended. And I think for me, this episode works, but there's a lot of just you know those reservations that you have because you almost want to say that this shouldn't be the way things work. And I think you're supposed to be unsettled. In Cisco's case, he was very lucky to have Garrick do the dirty work for him. And in a lot of ways, that makes it very easy because if we're presented with that kind of situation and somebody else does that terrible deed, you know, well, you know, that was wrong, and but I didn't do it and it helped, so... What can you do? Archer, though, one thing I actually really respected about him is he actually led the boarding party himself to the ship. And he actually confronted that captain at the end himself. And he, I think Archer yeah, truly believed he didn't have another option. And, and uh, it says a lot about his character that he was willing to do that. You know, I actually have to, I know this is about Archer, but I have to give credit where credit is due. And I think that Jolene Blaylock is just absolutely fantastic in this episode. And one of the things that really 
just struck me as, as kind of funny and a little bit of a surprise is she pulled out a quote that Archer gave to her earlier on in the series. She said to him, we can't save humanity without holding on to what makes us human. And I found that strangely ironic coming from a Vulcan, but I think that it's because he's finally getting that conscience, that advisor that we've always seen in other Star Trek series like Kirk's McCoy or Cisco's Dax. She's finally giving him that a mirror to look at and say, look at what's happening to you. And it's actually taking someone who doesn't really believe in that, the whole humanity and because it's not, it's not who she is. She's Vulcan. She's not human, but she understands what it means to him and confronting him with that very sentiment lets us know that they understand who the captain is and how far off track he's going. And I think that's a pretty smart bit of writing for uh, and making sure that the crew stays involved with also understanding what the, the struggles that Archer is going through. That's a really good point. And I think it's interesting because it's a reversal of what we normally see. Whereas previously in the show, Archer would want to do something to help people. And T'Pol would be the one to say, well, that's not really the logical thing to do. So we shouldn't help these people. Or it might put us in excess danger so we can't yeah, help a, these that's people. That's a direct callback to uh, fight or flight. Yeah, I was thinking of that exact same episode because Archer was so bound and determined to help those people. And Paul said, no, no, no. And now we have the exact opposite. Archer is the one, Paul is the one saying, we need, to, we need to take another look at this. We need to do things differently. And don't you think that it's because she knows the moral fiber that Archer is made of? And in doing what he has done, the choices that he's made and the way that he's treating the crew and himself, she ultimately has to turn to him and say, this isn't you at all. Even if you have to do what you need to do in order for the mission to be completed to save humanity against the Zindi, are you exhausting all your options? Are you looking at it from a complete 360 degree perspective as a captain should? And maybe this is one of the reasons why some of the Star Trek fans out there don't really care for Archer because they believe that a captain, a true captain, by their definition of a Starfleet captain, would do that. But at the same time, though, you have to face the reality of of where the writing is in this series. And this is pretty much a one-dimensional linear progression of where we're getting to for a Starfleet captain. He doesn't have all the answers. He's not a paragon, again, of Starfleet ideals. He was actually completely turned upside down when the mission of going out and exploring deep space was turned into a a one-way ticket, basically, to save all of humanity. Those are two completely different mindsets, as far as I'm concerned. So, and Will, when you were saying that, you know, you would like to have seen the repercussions of this episode in some way with Archer... I do believe that we actually get a chance to see it when they finally get home and he's finally debriefed and he's coming to terms with what he's become in the season four episode home because a lot of what he does and says in that episode are very cathartic and because of Hernandez being the epitome of who he wanted to be, we get to see how far Archer really fell from his original tenant of going out into deep space as this noble captain and fearless leader 
and bright-eyed optimist. So how did you feel about this episode in terms of where Archer was when he came back from the Zindi and where he was going in season four? Do you think that there was no way out for him and he just basically had to regroup and rebuild from the pieces that were his career at that point? The thing that makes Archer redeemable here is the fact that he's not Dick Cheney. He's not saying, you know, that we tortured all of these people or that we did these bad things, but it's okay. I'm I'm still okay with it. Archer is very much not okay with what he did. And I think even though he did, in the end, save the day, he saved Earth, um, he still questions whether or not that was the right choice to make. Because it it also asks the question of are we worth saving if we if we don't have our principles? Are our principles really that important? And I think they are, and I think Archer thinks they are, and he has to live with that, and he's really trying to figure out a way to do that. And it speaks a lot to his character because he's not going to just say it's okay to make himself feel better. He really wants to get through right. it. I, I think when you mentioned Norm, the issue of uh, repercussions. There are definitely emotional and inner repercussions for Archer in home, especially in his interactions with Hernandez and even in his debriefing with uh, Admiral Forrest and Saval. There's definitely that type of, of I guess, recollection or uh, reminiscing and a lot of introspection. So that does happen. Uh, when I was talking about repercussions uh, previously, I think I was talking more about events having unintended effects and obviously that's uh, a byproduct of having a a truncated series of it ending at season four i think in a larger in a larger context having archer have a lot of the self-doubt having him question the validity of his initial beliefs when he initially came out uh as the first nxo uh as the first uh Deep Space Starship Captain, his naivete in not believing that the ship should be armed at all because it would uh, jeopardize potentially a first contact mission. You know, he says to Hernandez, uh, we needed those weapons and you're going to need a whole lot more. And I think that is what uh, what Tommy referred to as what makes Archer redeemable is because he has that self-introspection. I think what had been incredible to have seen is the totality of Archer's arc, right? So you, at the end of season four, you have the beginnings of him finishing, I guess, his early trials, his early forays into deep space, right? But we know down the road he becomes an admiral, and we know down the road beyond that he becomes president of, you know, the fledgling federation. You know, there's so much potential there for him to, to realize his actions in the past, you know, although they justify the mission at the time where there unintended effects that he couldn't for, that he couldn't have foreseen. And I think that's something that for me makes Archer a very compelling character because we know at some point he's going to have to become this almost Zephram Cochrane type figure. He's going to become this larger than life figure. But what we see in Enterprise is something that's decidedly not larger than life. It's very grounded. He's very human. So at some point it, it does he have to kind of reconcile the two And is it more of an internal reconciliation in terms of realizing that although he was right at the time in 
stealing the warp coil um, from that vessel. That ultimately, that is not something that Starfleet captains should be doing. They should not be sacrificing their principles for expediency. And that's why he's starting to lay down for future Starfleet captains the rules, right? He's going to start laying down why the prime directive is something that we should follow in the future. Starting to lay down those touchstones that you're going to see other captains down the road take on. And I think that's something that unfortunately we never got to see. And I think that's what makes Archer ultimately, he's he's almost a cipher, right? It's almost, he brings everything about humanity into this mission, right? Humanity is still, he, he's very much the symbol for humanity because his mission is figuring everything's out, much like humanity is figuring everything out. And at some point, it's going to have to be the point in which we start to recognize the Starfleet and the Federation that we see in later on. You know, it's just like the song, right? It's it's a long, what is it? Uh, it's a long road again from there to here. And, you know, for, for Enterprise, we only saw the first maybe third of it. We never really see uh, how we get to um, the Federation that we know. And I think that's the the potential and kind of the 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 un the unfulfilled promise of enterprise you know in the mountain scenes where archer was with hernandez what i thought was incredibly realistic and it wasn't overplayed was a little bit of the post traumatic stress that archer was suffering and that gave him a little bit of a clarity because i think my favorite quote in this episode and it stuck with me again as, as as some of these more powerful confessions that Archer has about himself, you know, to other, you know, to fellow comrades or to confessors or to advisors, especially Hernandez, because she's the only other starship cap- captain in, in Starfleet's command right now. He said to her, I look at you and I see the person I was three years ago, the explorer that my father wanted me to be. I lost something out there. I don't know how to get it back. There is an entire volume of psychoanalysis that can be taken from what he said there. Because the phrase that sticks with me the most is the explorer that my father wanted me to be. Not the explorer that I wanted to be. So is that informing us to the point where even Archer himself, when he left Space Dock, didn't exactly know what he wanted from himself in this command because he was he was trying to fulfill his father's expectation of a command not his own or maybe jg robinson's expectation of his command or maybe the vulcan high command's expectation of his command or admiral forrest's and the list goes on and on and on and i didn't it didn't really strike me until i saw it just recently when I was reviewing this episode, when he said that, I was like, oh, that's an interesting thing to say. It's not the explorer that I wanted to be. It's the explorer that my father wanted me to be. Henry Archer, the great pioneer and architect of the Warp 5 engine. A legend that eclipsed Archer before Archer even got his command. How do you guys feel about a statement like that? I think that's a really good point because if you go back to Broken Bow, there's a lot of resentment in Archer when he talks about how his father didn't live long enough to see his ship design launch out of space dock. And it would have been really interesting to see a flashback episode to see a younger archer that's older than the the young boy that we saw in Broken Bow have an interaction with 
his father and then see his father interacting with, you know, his contemporaries like Zephyr Cochran and see his father's interactions with the Vulcans. And maybe you could see that that's the beginnings of what initially informed Archer and him, his chafing at the, at the Vulcans. You could see that, you know, he was really trying to finish or live up to the unfinished legacy of his father, right? And there's, there's a lot of projection there and there's a lot of, you know, unsaid, uh, emotional, I guess, quote unquote baggage that could have been there because he's almost feeling that he has to fit. He has to fulfill this mission because he owes it to his father because his father could never saw him, never saw his idea come to fruition. And I think it's a really good point because if they continue that storyline, it could have been Archer putting a close to, him fulfilling his father's idea of what his mission should be and then kind of charting his own path going forward. I agree completely. I never even really thought about that line when he mentioned his dad. Um, It does shine a whole new light on it that he's really feels like he's not lived up to what his dad's expectations would have been. And that bothers him a lot because now that you mention it, going back in the show, his Henry Archer, uh, Archer's father, plays a huge role in a lot of the things Archer does and a lot of the decisions that he makes, and including becoming a Starfleet captain. And it's, it would be, it's one of those things where he wonders what his dad would have done. Maybe if his dad was there, his dad could have made it better or made the situation better or wouldn't have, uh, or would have very disapproved of him. And I think Archer will never know that, but it bothers him greatly. Remember when we did last week uh, or a few weeks ago, we did the episode on Fortunate Son when Archer Mm -hmm. or Horizon, actually, um, when Archer is talking to Travis and Archer tells Travis there was a time when he considered joining the cargo service before he joined Starfleet. And Travis said, oh, can you tell me the story? Like, that's a pretty big change. And he says, oh, it's a long story. I'll get, in, I'll get into it next time we have breakfast. Clearly, it was intended as a throwaway line. But just thinking about what you just said, Norm, the foundation of a really great backstory is right there in terms of what would motivate Archer to join the cargo service as opposed to Starfleet. Is it because he is chafing at his dad's uh, overbearingness in his career or the fact that he's disillusioned that Starfleet's always going to be micromanaged by the Vulcans, so there's it's not worth it for him to join Starfleet. I think there's so much of uh, there, there's so many questions about Archer's early motivations that when you look back at a lot of these episodes, you're you're starting to see these nuggets that could have been filled in later on, but when you look at it in a different light, you you view it in a completely different way. Um, so I think that's just for me that just blew my mind just right now. Actually, you might have to write that down for a future for a future yeah. episode because we're. It's just, again, when you're picking up on some of these very smaller details, it's it's very consistent and kind of a trope with storytelling about you know military fathers and sons where the sons never really live up to the expectation of, and it's usually this incredibly well-decorated, well-honored, highly respected paternal figure. It could be a father, it could be an uncle, it could be a grandfather, but... It's kind of like uh, in Top Gun, you know, Maverick was always Pete Mitchell's son. You know, it was, uh, 
He was always he always had to live up to somebody. And in this case, Archer, I don't think ever really had a shot from the get go because the launch of the NXO one was predicated on the issue with Clang and Broken Bow. It wasn't a smooth launch. It wasn't the launch that he wanted. I mean, it, even in the uh, observation of making sure that the ship was seaworthy, Trip scratches the paint. It's just one of those, oh, come on, can't anything go right for me today? And he even admits it in Silent Enemy where he turns to DePaul and says, we're not ready. I pushed myself out here because I was, I was too proud not to. Because we had to get the Klingons, you know, their, you know, their courier, and we needed to show the Vulcan High Command that we didn't need them anymore. We needed to cut the ties. You know, we didn't, we didn't need to be micromanaged anymore. We're ready. But are we really? And I think that you see that in him more in season two and definitely shades of that in season three because it's not about confidence anymore. It's not about pride. It's not about his moral center anymore. It's about one single expectation, but it's not the expectation he wanted for himself. And that does not sit well for anyone's career when it comes to trying to achieve certain personal individual accomplishments. And I think that he's that guy. He likes accomplishing. He likes striking out for himself and showing and proving to the world his quality. And I don't think he had a chance to do that. And we may have seen that if we got subsequent seasons, but overall, it's just a career that could have been. And that's just one of the last sentiments I want to leave with the listeners when they take a look at this character because I think that Jonathan Archer is one of the more complex characters and one of the more comprehensive stories of how a captain is created that I think I've seen in the history of Star Trek. Usually you get the captain that's packaged. Kirk is packaged. Picard is packaged. Cisco, by and large, Janeway, they all have already established themselves in their career. They're just continuing their missions. Archer has never had that opportunity. You're seeing him for the first time making mistakes, making poor decisions, making good decisions, and trying to justify at the end of the day, am I doing the right thing in general let alone for this mission or that mission. So I always found that it's very believable and very real. And yes, it probably flies in the face of what anyone sees in their expectation of what a Star Trek captain is. I can agree with that. But I think in agreeing with that, it also proves a certain point that the writers knew that they were going to cause some type of criticism or some type of controversy because this is the beginning pure and simple this is the beginning of the very first captain of starfleet he's not going to get it all right so those were kind of like my final thoughts on on this on this great great study in 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 jonathan archer do you guys have anything left to say and leave it out all on the table i think in regards to what you said about him being the first and and 
him not being packaged. I think it's the same way history in the real world reflects our own society's development. When pretty much everyone in developed society today is appalled at the idea of slavery. But even when you go back to people who were the, for lack of a better word, heroes of the time, you know, are are very popular historical figures, um, they held slaves. And that doesn't mean that they necessarily always treated their slaves poorly or what have you. But if you were to create a character today, it would be ridiculous to have them as a slave owner, but you take them back a couple hundred years and you, somebody would watch it and say, well, nobody would ever do that. Well, that's how people acted back then. And I think it's the same way with Jonathan Archer. If you judge him in the same way you judge Picard from the 24th century, yeah, it doesn't make sense. But history is always different 200 years earlier. When Archer is the first guy there, of course things are going to be different. Of course he's going to have to approach these situations differently. Because he didn't have the benefit of learning from someone like Picard and Janeway did, and so on. Um, And so I think that's just for people who say that Archer, what his actions, especially in damage, fly in the face of everything we know for a Star Trek captain, a Starfleet captain. I think good. They should. Because he's the first one to have to deal with that kind of situation. And yeah, history will you know in the 24th century you couldn't imagine someone being that way but that's just the way history flows yeah i think the the arc of archer that we've seen is very much indicative of how storytelling has evolved you know in the original series and next generation the storytelling of that time didn't lend itself to more nuanced substantive narrative arc uh building it was much more episodic. It was much more about telling the moral, the story, the moral, the episode. And I think it's it's supremely ironic that, in a way, the evolution of, of storytelling on television, the way it's evolved to have more nuanced, sometimes gray characters, not, not necessarily black and white, the evolution of that storytelling enables you to tell a more realistic portrayal of the first captain because the first captain of earth starfleet not even the federation starfleet captain of the earth starfleet it demands a character that's going to be more gray because he has to or he has to make more mistakes it would not be believable if he didn't make those mistakes if he didn't have that nuance or that complexity so i think that arc that archer has is is indicative of just how storytelling has evolved and how in a way it totally worked out in telling, in my opinion, a more realistic uh, interpretation of the first captain. You know, I know the Zindi arc isn't a fan favorite, and I'm not exactly sure why, because it is my second favorite seri- um, of the series, sec- uh, season of the series. Uh, the first being uh, the first season, because I think the first season is just incredibly well done. By and large, I think a lot of fans just, they just didn't appreciate the single arc storytelling of the Zindi arc because it's just something that for all intents and purposes really isn't utilized well in Star Trek. They did it up to a point with Deep Space Nine, but that was really what seasons four through seven. So when fans took a look at this, they're like, well, what is this? I, I mean, I thought that Star Trek was supposed to be light and it's supposed to be fun and it's supposed to be a moral play and it's supposed to be 
a one to grow on moment. But no, it's season three is truly, in my opinion, the arc that creates the first Starfleet captain. It's where Archer had to basically come to terms with everything that is about him in order to do what he believes is the right thing. Different perspectives will weigh in on him and and history will judge him for this, but the decisions that he had to make, he had to make then and there without Starfleet, without an advisory board. Sometimes even at the sacrifice of his own conscience. And if we had the opportunity to listen to his captain's logs, if they were real, and if we were historians and studied all of this, what type of judgment would we place on Archer after that? Because would we gain enough perspective on the choices that he made in the situations that he was in in order to condemn him or exonerate him because we weren't there. And I think the writers had a tremendous challenge trying to convince the audience of that particular sentiment. It's hard to do that in Star Trek because Star Trek is so polished by and large. You know, the universe is wrapped up in this really nice bubble. The Federation is out there doing its thing. You know, you have its influence in the Gamma Quadrant and in the Delta Quadrant, you know. But that's not this. And I think the listeners really need to understand that, especially those who are sticking with their first or second or maybe even third viewing of the series in total, that the universe of Enterprise is very small. But at the same time, those who are going out into the smaller universe, a universe that is devoid of the Federation's influence, that universe is very large to them because there isn't the web of the Federation to govern and protect their foray, their first foray into space. That in and of itself, I think when you really look deep into the writer's choices for Archer and for this series, you'll really see, I think, more complexity than you may give the series credit for. Wow, that was something, huh, guys? <laughs> yeah, we need Larry Nemechek to write a new reference book called Captain's Logs, written by Admiral Jonathan Archer, but like in universe, like just have that be a book and just be like a reference, a reference title. Uh, that would be awesome. I would totally buy that. I mean, we all love talking about Enterprise, but I feel incredibly fortunate to have both of you on this show to be able to really discuss this in depth because as fans, we like getting to the truth or truths of a certain matter. And in this case, I liked being able to explore and debate about all the different sides and all the different variables of of how people perceive Archer. Uh, and there's no better format to do it than amongst friends and amongst people who really appreciate the show. I couldn't agree more. It's been fun talking about the complexity of Captain Jonathan Archer here in the Decon Chamber. But this isn't the only thing we've been talking about here on Trek FM this past week. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. I really, really, really hope that if they do that, they make Chang the villain because 
you know, Captain Chang instead of General Chang or whatever, mm-hmm. you know? I mm-hmm. mean, that just seems like the perfect way to go. Earl Grey. All right, Riker, we're promoting you to captain. I mean, you uh, you killed the last captain. We usually don't reward that. That's usually not a policy, but in this case... Well, well to be fair, he had spent some time on a Klingon ship. The Orb. But the Federation and Bajor as a member of the Federation would be helping rebuild Cardassia. And I could see like very much the relationship between the U.S. and Japan today. I could see the Federation and Cardassia having that kind of relationship moving forward. To the journey! Jimmy has a very distinct pain noise. Yeah, she you know kind what I'm of talking does. About? It sounds sort of like she's suffocating. Yeah, it sounds like she's suffocating and sometimes, and I'm going to keep it clean, not always in pain. The ready room. He is the best cosplayer ever because he's so buried himself in his part that we have no idea who this guy is outside of the impersonation of Tuvok. Exactly. He's the Christian Bale of the Delta Quadrant. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. If I'm not mistaken, in any upcoming episode of Next Generation, we don't see full-grown uh, golden retrievers running around the decks of the Enterprise. And I'm also a little worried that Captain Picard has never played with puppies. Commentary, Trek stars. You, but you'd rather see Red in charge than him. Oh, yeah, totally. Because right. you really want porn stash to go down. Yes, yes, you do. And that sentence out of context sounds really strange. Literary treks. As great as Picard is and his Picard maneuver, uh, I don't think Picard straightening his shirt is going to help him uh, <laughs> when he's going up against the Riker maneuver. Fair enough, yeah. So. Axonar, the official podcast. The changes that we've made, the change to the nacelles and uh, several other aspects of these ships to make them distinct and, and not the same ships as uh, in, in Star Trek 2009. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search on iTunes. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. Now Tommy and Will, I know that you said this on the air before, but I always want to give you a chance to make sure that our listeners can get in contact with you. So Will, tell us how our our listeners can find you on the interwebs out there in subspace. Well, you can find me on Twitter at at Will underscore Win. It's spelled N-G-U-Y-E-N. And of course, you can find me in the Babel Conference, which is the Trek FM uh, dedicated Facebook listeners group. I'm also an associate producer for uh, Literary Treks, The Orb, and Earl Grey. And I'm also the network's content coordinator. So if you have an idea on any topic you want us to talk about, just shoot me a line. And Tommy... How about you? How can our fans get in touch with you? The main place I usually post is on the Star Trek Horizon Facebook page. And for those who don't know, Star Trek Horizon is an enterprise film I'm working on. And you can find the Facebook page at facebook.com slash sthorizon. Um, It's pretty much always me that posts the updates there. And if you want to get in touch, just shoot a message to the Facebook page and I'll I'll get back to you. Awesome, Tommy. Thank you. And uh, for our listeners out there, please take a look at this page. 
Tommy and his team have been working extremely hard and their results are just absolutely fantastic. And if you want to continue the content of Enterprise in that universe, please support him in all of his efforts because I believe that it is money well spent and it is a great way to support all the fan efforts out there. So thank you, Tommy. Thank you for that nice endorsement. I appreciate that. Another way you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, you'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. I also want to take this opportunity to say thank you to our new associate producer for Warp Fide, Floyd Dorsey. Thanks, Floyd, for all your support on the network through Patreon.com. And you can find Floyd on the Babel Conference, Trek FM's dedicated Facebook listeners page. If you would like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on Trek FM slash contact and look in the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash Trek FM. You can also contact us through Twitter at Trek FM, Facebook facebook.com slash trekfm and as i just mentioned earlier the babel conference type the babel conference that's b-a-b-e-l into the search field on facebook or go to our website at trekfm and click discussion on the menu bar before we go we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps us bring warp 5 and all of our shows to you each week and our sponsor for this show is audible.com audible is a great way for you to read all of the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have time for as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice, along with a 30-day trial to see how great Audible is. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm, and we thank Audible for supporting Warp 5 and the network. And don't forget to check out Enterprise in Space, a project of the nonprofit National Space Society that will design and launch an 8-foot orbiter and return the craft to Earth. The NSS Enterprise Orbiter will carry more than 100 student-designed science experiments into space, and you can help make it happen. Visit enterpriseinspace.org to find out more and get your seat on the mission. Now, if you would like to get in touch with me, you can always find me here on the network or on the Babel Conference or on Twitter at Norman Lau. That's N-O-R-M-A-N-L-A-O. And I'm a huge supporter of Alec Peters and the Axnar Project, and you can find me on the dedicated Axnar fan group page on Facebook as well. Lastly, I'm a proud supporter of Trek FM through Patreon, and I am an associate producer of four shows here on the network, Warp 5, The Orb, The 602 Club, and Axanar, the official Axanar podcast. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening, and join us again here in the Decon Chamber next time for another episode of Warp 5.